Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and you've reached the Book of Mormon Lecture Series. I've been teaching seminary and institute for the last 11 years, and uh, this is an attempt to do a deep dive into the Book of Mormon itself. I'm hoping that you'll find this uplifting and edifying. This is not an official recording of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but every attempt has been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. So if you're ready for a deep dive into the Book of Mormon, here we go. Hi, and welcome back to the Book of Mormon podcast. Uh, this is going to be a discussion of, of Mormon chapter 1. And so now we're getting into kind of the sad part of the Book of Mormon, where the Nephites are going to become more wicked to the point of being destroyed. So that's not good. In Mormon's record, we get a glimpse of what life without a hope in Christ would be like. And so that's kind of what we're going to be seeing here in the next few chapters. Verse 1, and now I, Mormon... Um, Joseph Smith said, in an effort to correct an error in relation to the word Mormon, the prophet wrote the following letter to the editor of the Times and Seasons. Sir, through the medium of your paper, I wish to correct an error among men that profess to be learned, liberal, and wise, and I do it the more cheerfully because I hope sober thinking and sound reasoning people will sooner listen to the voice of truth than be led astray by the vain pretensions of the self-wise. The error I speak of is the definition of the word Mormon. It has been stated that this word was derived from the Greek word mormo. This is not the case. There was no Greek or Latin upon the plates from which I, through the grace of the Lord, translated the Book of Mormon. The word Mormon literally means more good. And so that was by Joseph Smith. Uh, I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard and call it the Book of Mormon. Elder Holland said, in one of the loneliest scenes in scriptural history, a silent war-weary soldier looked out across time and the unspeakable tragedy his family and followers faced. Mormon, the man destined before the world was formed to abridge and summarize the Nephite story, and in so doing to have his name forever immortalized with, with this <clears throat> additional testament of Jesus Christ, surveyed the casualties of a nation that had turned from the Lord. As sobering as the account is, it does not give a full account of all the sin and sadness Mormon had seen. Indeed, such an account probably would have been impossible to record. Verse 2, And about the time that Amaron hit up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me, I being about ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amaron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child and art quick to observe. How many ten-year-olds do you know that are sober and quick to observe? Now, when it says sober, it's another another adjective might be thoughtful or serious-minded or mature beyond his chronological age. The way to get along in any important matter is to gather unto yourselves wise men, experienced and aged men, to assist in counsel in all times of trouble. Handsome men are not apt to be wise. I don't know why Joseph said this, but it's uh, interesting. Handsome men are not apt to be wise and strong-minded men. But the strength of a strong-minded man will generally create coarse features, like the the rough, strong bough of the oak, you will always discover in the first glance of a man in the outlines of his features something of his mind. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Elder Holland said, We know that every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in his premortal existence. Perhaps that call has an effect on those men even in their earliest mortal years. For Mormon was recognized by his predecessor Amaron as being a sober child and one quick to observe. Elder Bednar said, please note that the root word observe is used three times in these verses, and Mormon, even in his youth, is described as being quick to observe. As you study and learn and grow, I hope you also 
are learning about and becoming quick to observe. Your future success and happiness will in large measure be determined by this spiritual capacity. As used in the scriptures, the word observe has two primary uses. One use denotes to look or to see or to notice as we learn in Isaiah 42.20, seeing many things, but thou observest not, opening the ears, but he heareth not. The second use of the word observe suggests to obey or to keep, and as is evident in the doctrine of covenants, but blessed are they who have kept the covenant and observed the commandment, for they shall obtain mercy. Thus, when we are quick to observe, we promptly look or notice and obey. Both of these fundamental elements, looking and obeying, are essential to being quick to observe, and the prophet Mormon is an impressive example of this gift in action. Being quick to observe is an antecedent to and is linked with the spiritual gift of discernment. Being quick to observe is a prerequisite to and a preparation for the gift of discernment. We can hope to obtain that supernal gift of discernment and its light of protection and direction only if we are quick to observe, if we both look and obey. Verse 3, Therefore, when, when ye are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember the things that ye have observed concerning this people. And when ye are of that age, go to the land of go to the land Antum, unto a hill which shall be called Shim, and there have I deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. Apparently, Amron did not have a son of his own to pass the plates onto, or another wicked, or another righteous person to give it to, but Mormon. And behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are. More plates left behind in the hill. And ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have, have observed concerning this people. And I, Mormon, being a descendant of Nephi, and my father's name was Mormon, I remembered the things which Amaron commanded me. And it came to pass that I, being eleven years old, was carried by my father into the land southward, even to the land of Zarahemla. The whole face of the land had become covered with buildings, and the people were as numerous almost as it were the sand of the sea. Hugh Nibley said, He was eleven years old, and he was taken by his father to a land southward to Zarahemla, the big city, the big capital. He was impressed as a little kid, he says. The land was covered with buildings, and he had never seen anything like that. The people were as, as numerous almost as it were the sand of the sea. Now this is important for the Book of Mormon. We talk about such vast numbers. Well, we'll see what vast numbers are. When they gather all their forces for a big war down here, how many do they have in the army? 30,000. That's just one division. In our army, 27,000 would make a division. He calls that as numerous as the sands of the sea. Well, as an 11-year-old, he's impressed. You'd be impressed with these things. So we have to be very careful and not be simplistic when we read, when, when we read the Book of Mormon. When this kid tells us that people in Zarahemla were as numerous as the sands of the sea, how many hundred trillion people are there? It doesn't mean that at all. It's a metaphor here, as if it were as it were the sands of the sea. Verse 8, And it came to pass, in this year there began to be a war between the Nephites, who consisted of the Nephites and the Jacobites and the Josephites and the Zoramites. And this war was between the Nephites and the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites. Do you notice that they named seven families? Seven is symbolic of complete. That is, these are all of the Lehites. What happened to the Samites? Sam is, is seldom mentioned. His inheritance is with Nephi. So uh, they, they purposely leave out Sam, maybe so that they can have seven uh, to show completeness. I don't know. Verse 9, Now the Lamanites and the Lemuelites and the Ishmaelites were called Lamanites, and the two parties were Nephites and Lamanites. And it came to pass that the war began to be among them in the borders of Zarahemla by the waters of Sidon. 
And it came to pass that the Nephites had gathered together a great number of men, even to exceed the number of 30,000. And it came to pass that they did have in this same year a number of battles in which the Nephites did beat the Lamanites and did slay many of them. And it came to pass that the Lamanites withdrew their design, and there was peace settled in the land. And peace did remain for the space of about four years, that there was no bloodshed. But wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land, insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples, in other words, the three Nephites. And the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any. Now, this is a bit of an exaggeration. Mormon and Moroni had the Holy Ghost, as did a few others of their friends and family. So he, when he says that there's nobody that's getting the gift of the Holy Ghost, that's not entirely accurate, because there are still some righteous people. 14, again, because of their wickedness and unbelief. Hugh Nibley, it is not surprising that their personal experience of things led both Mormon and his son to embrace a completely pessimistic view of the world. True, awful is the state of man only if faith has ceased. But faith has ceased. If men insist that there is no redemption, then sure enough, they are as though there had been no redemption made. Woe be unto, uh, or, I'm sorry, if these things have ceased, says Moroni, speaking of gifts of the Spirit, woe be unto the children of men, for it is because of unbelief and all is vain. This is no mere figure of speech. If faith fulfills its own prophecies, so does unbelief, and those who insist that all is vain are quite right. If men reject the gospel, they will find everywhere powerful confirmation for their unbelief and undeniable evidence to support their contention that the human predicament is hopeless. Joseph Smith said, Have not the pride, high-mindedness, and unbelief of the Gentiles provoked the Holy One of Israel to withdraw his Holy Spirit from them and send forth his judgments to scourge them for their wickedness? This is certainly the case. The Lord declared to his servants some 18 months since the church was organized that he was then withdrawing his spirit from the earth. And we can see that such is the fact, for not only are the not only the churches are dwindling away, but there are no conversions, or but few, and this is not all, the governments of the earth are thrown into confusion and division and destruction. To the eye of the spiritual beholder seems to be written by the finger of an invisible hand in large capitals upon almost everything we behold. Verse 15, and I being 15 years of age, so he's now about the age of Joseph Smith, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord. So he had the second comforter, the Savior appeared to him, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. There must be something significant concerning the stage of life one goes through at the age of about 14. Mormon's awakening to spiritual matters at about this age foreshadows a similar awakening at a similar age by the young Joseph Smith, who would translate Mormon's record. Similarly, through modern-day prophets, the Lord has specified 12 as the age when worthy young men of his church can receive the Aaronic Priesthood. Now that's changed to 11. What all of this seems to suggest is a heightened spiritual sense experienced at about this age, something that conscientious parents of young teenagers would do well to keep in mind. Verse 16, And I, didn't, I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut, and I was forbidden. It is not normal for members of the church to be commanded not to preach the gospel to their neighbors. Don't cast your pearls before swine, however. Continuing verse 16, That I should preach unto them, for behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God, and the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity. Elder Holland said, The maturing Mormon, by then 15 years of age, stood beyond the sinfulness around him and rose above the despair of his time. Consequently, he was visited of the Lord and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus, trying valiantly to preach to his people. But as God occasionally does, 
When those with so much light reject it, Mormon literally had his mouth shut. He was forbidden to preach to a nation that had willfully rebelled against their God. These people had rejected the miracles and messages delivered them by the three translated Nephite disciples, who had now also been silenced in their ministry and been taken from the nation to whom they had been sent. Remaining among those people but silenced in his testimony, Sterling W. Sill said, Mormon had to be restrained in his desire to preach the gospel. Most of us have to be coaxed and begged and reminded to do our duty. Mormon had to be held back. Verse 17, But I did remain among them, but I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts, and because of the hardness of their hearts the land was cursed for their sake. Erastus Snow said, If our spirits are inclined to be stiff and refractory, and we desire continually the gratification of our own will to the extent that this feeling prevails in us, the Spirit of the Lord is held at a distance from us, or in other words, the Father withholds his Spirit from us in proportion as we desire the gratification of our own will. After the fall, the Lord declared unto Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. It is clear from other scriptural commentary that this original cursing of the land as a result of the fall was a beneficial act that provided for the growth and development of Adam and Eve and their posterity, as well as allowing for the full operation of the plan of salvation. In contrast to this usage of the phrase for their sake, Mormon uses the phrase not to illustrate any beneficial aspects, but rather to point out another terrible consequence of the wickedness of its people. The definition of sake in an 1830 dictionary or some other com contemporary edition would include on account of, this definition seems to fit better with Mormon's intent and is consistent with other Book of Mormon passages that use similar language. The land was cursed not for the blessing or benefit of the Nephites in any way, but rather on account of their great wickedness. And that was by Millard McConkie. Joseph Smith said, I prophesy in the name of the Lord God of Israel, the withdrawing of the Spirit of God from the earth, await this generation until they are visited with utter desolation. Verse 18, And these Gadianton robbers who were among the Lamanites did infest the land insomuch that the inhabitants thereof began to hide up their treasures in the earth, and they became slippery because the Lord had cursed the land, that they could not hold them nor retain them again. Remember that that's exactly what Samuel the Lamanite had said. You place all your love in your riches, behold, your riches will become slippery that you cannot hold them. Of course they do. I mean, the, the stock market can be wiped out in an hour. They became slippery that they could not hold them. That was by Hugh Nibley. The slippery earth did not necessarily swallow up treasures in some mystical or magical way, but rather such treasures disappeared through the thievery and dishonesty of the Gadians and others with similar motives. That was by Millet McConkie. Elder uh, Brigham Young said, When we consider the condition of the Latter-day Saints and see how many there are who seem to have their eyes fixed upon the things of this world, things that are not lasting but that perish in the handling, and how anxious they are to obtain them, how do you think I feel about it? We see many of the elders of Israel desirous of becoming wealthy, and they adopt any course that they think will bring them riches, which to me is as unwise as anything can be, to see men of wisdom, men that seem to have an understanding of the world and of the things of God, searching after minerals throughout these mountains. These treasures that are in the earth are carefully watched. They can be removed from place to place, according to the good pleasure of him who made them and owns them. He has his messengers at his service. And it is just as easy for an angel to remove the minerals from any part of one of these mountains to another as it is for you and me to walk up and down this hall. Verse 19, And it came to pass that there were sorceries and witchcrafts and magics and the power of the evil one who, who was wrought of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, even unto the fulfilling of all the words of Abinadi and also Samuel the Lamanite. 
And so the wickedness predicted by both Abinadi and Samuel are now being fulfilled here among the Nephites. I bear testimony that these things are true, and sad as this is, uh, this is a type of, of what could happen uh, prior to the second coming, uh, that there might be great wickedness, although we know that the church will never end in apostasy, but uh, individuals might. I bear testimony of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next time.